the book of Hebrews as we have been going through Christ of the book. In the book of Hebrews, Christ is the author of eternal salvation. We need to understand, we need to conclude that there is no other way under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only through Christ Jesus that He and He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. So as we go through Christ of the book, we understand in the book of Hebrews, He is the author of eternal salvation. It's in the book of Hebrews we understand that He is the captain of our salvation. We understand from the book of Hebrews, that He is the author and finisher of faith. We can rely on Him. We can trust Him. We can have that certainty in Him that our salvation not only is paid for, not only is His sacrifice sufficient, efficient to pay that indebtedness that we owe, but There needs not be any worry. There needs not be any anxiety. There needs not be any doubt. If by faith you have trusted Christ, you are sealed into the day of redemption. That He is the captain of our salvation. That means you are sealed into the day of redemption. And we can trust Him completely. In the book of Hebrews, in the first chapter... We find out that there that the, the author talks about the inspiration of the Scripture, that it is the plenary, complete Word of God. It's in the first chapter of Hebrews that it talks about the incarnation of Christ, that God Himself became a man. And basically, that was Israel's stumbling point. That was Israel's stumbling block. And the book of Hebrews pretty well goes back and explains how all of that was to occur. That the Messiah that they hoped for and they longed for was God Himself in human form. In the first, first, very first chapter, it talks about the inspiration, talks about the incarnation, and it talks about the deity, that the Messiah is God. He is very much God. Go with me to Hebrews. Well, in chapter 2, it talks about, don't, don't, do not, I have a cold. And when I was making the announcements, keeping a cough drop in my mouth, I'm glad there was no one sitting on the front row, or it might have been serious damage. Uh, so uh, if I get choked up and have to grab some water, you'll know why I'm doing that. Chapter 2 tells us not to neglect that offer of salvation that we have. That he tasted death for every man. Chapter 3, it tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior, superior to Moses. That would have meaning to his Hebrew readers. The book of Hebrews written to Hebrews. Gentiles, they, they don't understand what's being said here. The Gentiles, this was so foreign to them. The sacrifices and the high priest and, and all in the sanctuary and the, and the equipment and the instruments in the sanctuary. What Hebrews covers, the Gentiles would just not show much interest and keep this in mind. During this time, uh, this was about the same time that Paul is writing to Hebrews and it was not too long after that, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about how the Hebrews, these Jews, were without hope, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And so they, they didn't understand so much of what was going on here during this time. So talking about how he's superior to Moses, Christ is. Chapter 4 is the challenge to enter into the rest that Christ offers. Chapter 5 was how his position as high priest is greater than that of Aaron, the high priest. 
Chapter 6 talks about the maturity that they need. These Hebrew listeners, they need to go on to. Leaving so many of those things that, that, that caused them to stumble. Leaving those things that they didn't quite grasp. It was time for them to go on to maturity. Chapter 7. We talked a little bit about that last week. And this is where I want to pick back up. Chapter 7. It's talking about Melchizedek and his position that Christ has as the high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, starting with verse 17. For he testifies, the he being God himself, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We talked about him last week, that he has neither father or mother without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God abides a priest continually. This order of Melchizedek was a special priesthood. It was a special order. And that only Christ Jesus would qualify. I believe that when Abraham met the, uh, Melchizedek thereafter the battle that he had with those other kings, and he paid his tithes to Melchizedek, that was Christ Jesus himself. So his order is a high order of priesthood, not at all after the order of Aaron, because that priesthood was limited. That priesthood caused the priest, the high priest, every year to go in and offer sins for himself and sins for the nation of Israel. That position, although ordained of God, appointed by God, called of God, was made up of fallible men. It had a beginning, it had an end. As a matter of fact, a priest started at the age of 30, and he had to quit, he had to retire at the age of 50. So his days were limited. The order of Melchizedek has nothing like that. It was a special order, and it required, and we get that in Hebrews, and I can't stress enough the importance of understanding that the law itself had to be changed in order for that, in order for the order of Melchizedek to be recognized as the high priest. But God did that. As a matter of fact, it was God who established the Aaronic priesthood. It was Him who ordained that that instigated that. So if he can instigate that, you know what he has the sovereignty and the ability and the power and the authority to do? To change it. That's exactly what he did. In order for his only begotten son, God himself in the flesh, to become that necessary high priest in order to enter into that temple, that heavenly tabernacle, and pay that sacrifice that was needed once and for all. What a Savior. What a God. What a plan. What a purpose. What a payment. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God. That better hope is the Messiah. You keep doing these things. As they brought the sacrifices, as the high priest did his duty, as the priest carried out their duties, they all pointed to that sacrifice, the sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. And when they brought their sacrifices, they were bringing them in faith in trust, and God, recognizing that act of faith, forgave them of their sins. Because we're getting ready to see that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't possibly do it, but oh, but the blood of God himself could do it. For the law made nothing perfect. Verse 20, inasmuch as not without an oath he was made 
priest. For those priests were made without an oath, talking about Aaron. But this was an oath by him that said unto him, and it's on this authority, it's on this ground, it's on this statement that they couldn't argue that Jesus was the Messiah, he was ordained of God, and the author of Hebrews is saying, here, let me show you, I'm going to take you back because someone could have argued and said, he wasn't a priest after Aaron, the order of Aaron. But the author is saying, he didn't need to be. Look what God himself ordained. For those priests were without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a certainty or a guarantee of a better agreement, a better testament, a better covenant. So you can rely on His. Those others, those priests were infallible. Those, even the high priest, God still honored their work. But oh, this high priest, after this order, perfect in every way, totally, completely satisfies God's requirement for righteousness and perfection. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Death will do it. Death will cause you to get to a point where you can't do much more, right? There were a lot of those priests. Why did they have to keep having priests? Because they died. But not this priest. Not this priest. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So he doesn't have to pass it on. That the whole explanation here is to Israel who saw the death of Christ, the cross. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 1 talks about uh, that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us who are saved is the power of God and salvation. What is the next part of that verse says? To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greek, foolishness. Because that's not what the Jews imagined. That's not what the Jews hoped for. It's not what the Jews expected. It's not what the nation of Israel longed for. The book of Hebrews is all about, you should have. Here, it's all here. It's right here. Read it in this connotation. Read what God's offer to Israel was in this vein, and it makes sense. That's what's going on here in the book of Hebrews. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Makes a big difference. If the one who represents you, if the one who made payment for your sin, continues to live. There's no need to keep going and offering a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice. It's been done. When Christ on Calvary's cross says, it is finished, that contained a multitude of meaning. Multitude of meaning. For he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Matter of fact, go back to John 14, 6, where Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I think that's an association with this verse here. He ever lives to make intercession for them. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. In Acts chapter 4, when it says that, that there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, that's what this is talking about. He ever lives to make intercession. Look at verse 26. For such a high priest became us, perfect, righteous, without dying. For such a high priest became us, totally man, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. 
See, that ought to have put the nation of Israel on dancing ground. That should have put them on hallelujah chorus alert. That's what this is all about. He came. He came. The Messiah that you've longed for, the Messiah that you prayed for. You know, even today, you go to Israel, one of the, the, uh, one of the most heartbreaking things that you can see is all the Jews at the Wailing Wall, which supposedly is part of the wall of the temple. And they put their prayer request in all the holes, and, and they, they stand there with their shawls and their coverings, and, and they just pray, and they bounce back and forth praying for the Messiah. To me, that is one of the saddest, saddest images ever. Because he came. And he offered everything that he promised. He offered him. He offered him. Verse 27, who needs not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. It's like I said last week. Not only did Christ offer up the required sacrifice, he was the required sacrifice. Don't tell me God doesn't love us. Don't tell me that God does not care about our eternal destination. When you stop and you think of the extreme measure that he went to in order to purchase our, our redemption. For the law makes or appoints men high priest which have infirmity. They have sin. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, makes the Son who is concentrated forevermore. That, that whole verse talks about the, the law appointed men that sin. But it's the word of the oath. Thou art a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That oath, that promise, that declaration by God changes all of that, who is consecrated forevermore, set apart, set apart, made special. Chapter 8 goes into the summary of all of this. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Here's the point of it all. We have such a high priest, holy, perfect. All the things it just declared. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he got the instructions for the tabernacle to build? That was just a shadow of what the reality is in heaven. That those, that description, those orders to build this earthly tabernacle, it was just a shadow of the glory of the real that's in heaven. And the whole point here is that, that, that the author of Hebrews is getting ready to point out is that all of that was a pattern. It was a type. Don't cling to that. Understand that the reality of it is absolutely glorious. See, that's part of that stumbling block. That's part of that stumbling that, that, that Israel did at those truths. In Romans 11, 1 and following. Read. We're not going to take time because I really do want to get through Hebrews today. But if you want to know what was going on, read Romans 11, 1 through the end of that chapter. Because it really, it fits in here as an explanation of what's taking place. As Israel is slowly, slowly being cast aside, temporarily, blinded, partially. But don't cling to that which is earthly because you have something better to hold on to, is what the author is saying. 
For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. There was an earthly tabernacle. There was an altar. There was a place the high priest would enter into behind the veil. And just as certain as he had a place to go, oh, let me tell you, and that's the joy, that's the excitement that's building here. The man, Christ Jesus, he had a more spectacular, he had a more glorious place to enter into. It's not made with hands. The Lord built it, not man. Verse 6, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now this goes back to Jeremiah 31, as, as we're getting ready to see, of what God had promised Israel and the house of Judah he was going to do. And again, as we read through this, please understand, I know I harp on this all the time, but it's because it's scriptural and we need to understand it so we don't lose sight of what's really being said here. And that is, church, you are not spiritual Israel. This promise of a better covenant was made to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah, not to the church, the body of Christ. They, the, Israel and Judah can only hope to have the position that we have as heirs of God, joint heirs of Christ, seated in the heavenlies, as members of, of parts of the body of Christ, and as soon as we get through with Hebrews, we're going to go into the Pauline epistles that really show that contrast of what our, what our position is in Christ and how glorious that is. But even what he's describing now is better than what Israel had. There was sin attached. There was, of course, grace that had to be because of the high priests that were offering it. But here's a better, better promises. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless or perfect, then should no place have been sought for the second. But you know what? It wasn't. It wasn't. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come. Them being the nation of Israel, nation of Judah, finding fault with them. Why? Because they were sinning. They were going after strange gods. They were doing, they were disobeying God. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So that there tells us which covenant he's talking about. That Mosaic covenant, when Moses sprinkled the blood on the people, on the word, after they came out, he, uh, out of Egypt, he made that covenant, he made that special promise, and that special promise was conditional. If you do these things, I will do these things. See, a covenant normally by necessity, needs two parties to enter into an agreement. The marriage covenant, the man and the woman saying, we do, they enter into a marriage covenant. You enter into an agreement, you shake hands and you say, I give you my word, and, and uh, you, you enter into a business agreement, a business covenant. That, that's important. Well, that's exactly what happened back over in Genesis, I mean Exodus, back over in Exodus when Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt. They entered into that agreement. That's the one, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant even though they said they would. You know what's interesting about the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham? the promises that he made with Abraham, you know what's one startling difference? Abraham was asleep through the whole thing. It was that covenant 
that promise to Abraham to bless his seed, and by the way, you've been blessed by the seed of Abraham. The fact that by faith you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and you're part of his body. You, you've been blessed by that Gentile, Abraham, who believed God. There are aspects of that promise to Abraham, but that initial promise, Abraham, he'll sound asleep. And God came through that campsite and he did a remarkable thing as he made a promise to Abraham. He made an oath to Abraham. That's not the covenant that he's talking about here. It's talking about the one that God made via Moses there in Exodus 24, 25. When I, by the, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. See, that's what God promised to do with Israel and Judah. But that hasn't been completed yet. That has not been fulfilled. That is still future. And the reason for it is because Israel said, nope, we'll not have this man to reign over us. They rejected. When Christ, when, um, when he talked about uh, the Last Supper, I will not partake of this cup. This cup is the, the blood of my New Testament. I'll not uh, partake again until we're in the kingdom. All of that is part of this. But it was future depending on Israel being offered the kingdom and by faith believing or rejecting, which they did. But this is the covenant, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to, my, be to me a people." Uh, is that the condition of Israel today, of the nation of Israel? No, as a matter of fact, they're low ammy, not my people. They're partially blinded. This will come to pass. This will take place because God, His Word will come forth. This will happen. For I will be, well, verse 11, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest. There won't be any need for you guys to share your faith. It, they're all going to know me. Talking about the millennial kingdom, what's coming? This, this covenant has not been, it's been placed in obeyance because of Israel's rejection, but more importantly because Israel was going to reject that's what the tribulation is all about, is to bring Israel, woo Israel back to himself. But this covenant offer has been put in abeyance until the time of the Gentiles, this day of grace, be come in. Right now, God is offering salvation, not based on covenant promises, but based on grace to whosoever believes. Let him come. What a, what a plan of salvation. God in his mercy and his grace He's not willing that any should perish. So he raised up the chief of sinners and gave him a message, gave him revelation, gave him a mystery to share with you Gentiles. Because Gentiles were not understanding this at the time. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decays and waxing old is ready to vanish away. Hadn't vanished, but it's ready to vanish. That's what was going on here. But the new covenant is in abeyance until the kingdom be established. Chapter 9, it is a chapter of contrast. It contrasts the two tabernacles that was necessary for them to understand what was going on. They were scratching their heads. What's he talking about here? 
the two tabernacles, an earthly and a heavenly, two priesthoods, Levitical and uh, the order of Melchizedek, two offerings, two offerings, the Levitical offering and the offering of Christ himself. That's what chapter 9 is talking about. It talks about the old sanctuary. It takes, talks about the old sacrifice. But look at verse 11. But Christ being come high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building or this creation. I got news for you. When Christ ascended, he entered into the tabernacle, to that heavenly tabernacle. He laid down himself as that sacrifice. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, because that's what he was instructed to do. Sit here at my right hand, the Father says to the only begotten Son, until I make your enemies my footstool. See, all of that was part of the plan. But in fact, the author of Hebrews takes them to Psalm 40 to show there in Psalm 40 that these truths were declared. Psalm 110, because they couldn't say, oh, this, this is not back there. This, this was not mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh-huh. Psalm 110 was written by, well, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but was David. They can't argue with something David said. That's what all this is about. Talking about that perfect sacrifice, that perfect Savior, that perfect plan. The book of Hebrews is so deep and so glorious. But Christ being come, high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Something that the Aaronic priesthood couldn't do. That's not something your pastor could do. That's not something any other human being could do except for the one and only the Lord Jesus Christ who is God himself. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean satisfies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance." All that is saying is that Christ got the job done. He's the mediator of all that God had promised. He accomplishes all that he accomplished. Verse 16 is interesting. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, that's an interesting point about a testament. Now, As I read through this, and when we do the book of Hebrews, we're going to really go through in much detail uh, the problem, the issue with the word testament. I think it's a bad translation. It's Latin. It's not Greek. It's, it's, it's Latin. And I, I, it could be translated testament, but here it carries the idea of what a testament really is. How many of you have a will? How many of you hope you all have a will? Need a will. When you get your will, what does it say? Your last will and testament. It's saying, here's what I want done when I'm gone. 
when I'm dead, here's how I want to leave my earthly goods. Your last will and testament is a declaration of what you want to have done. Your last will and testament, Faye and I have a, we have a, our last will and testament. But one of the things our daughters know, at least hopefully they know this, that it's not any good right now. It's not going to do them a bit of good to take it to the court and say, I, I have my mom and dad's last will and testament, and it says here that we get everything that they, they have. You know what the judge is going to say? Sorry, they're not dead yet. So it's no good. I mean, it's good, but it's not fulfillable. It has to be the death of the testator. I have to die. Faye has to die before our kids can go buy ice cream because that's about all they're going to be able to do. But they'll be able to get a double scoop, I'm sure. But see, without the death, that's what this is saying. For where a testament is, where there's a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament or a will is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator lives. That's what I was trying to say, except the writer of Hebrews says it a whole lot better than I do. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. The second testament has been dedicated by blood, the blood of the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That first covenant, that first testament, it absolutely was dedicated with blood when Moses sprinkled there in Exodus 24, the nation of Israel, the law, all the priests, everyone that was there, the blood from the sacrifice were sprinkled. And God recognized that. And the agreement was entered in. Verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have offered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow. And it's appointed in man once to die, but after that, after this, the judgment, and you read that and you shake, you read that and you go, oh no, oh no. But when you read the part above that, it's, oh, but, Oh, the sacrifice has been paid. The debt has been paid. Chapter 10 is the victory chapter. It talks about, verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Verse 10, by the which, all will we, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats, but looky here, the blood of Christ is thoroughly furnished to pay that debt. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifice, which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Remember the veil that used to be between the Holy of Holies and the Holy of Place? There was a veil that separated, and only the high priest could go in. With the veil to the tabernacle, to the temple, the heavenly one, the perfect one, is Christ Jesus himself. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, 
for he is faithful that promised. Chapter 11 is all about the faith chapter in those Old Testament heroes who gave of themselves, and it talks about faith. Chapter 12 kind of sums up their faith. After listing all of these heroes of the faith and what they did, and how blessed they were, and that the world, the world doesn't deserve is what, is what it says. The world doesn't deserve all of these people who so valiantly and loving, lovingly laid down their lives for the cause of God. But when you take all of them in consideration, chapter 12 says, therefore, or wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, all these martyrs, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so doth easily beset us. When we look to them for, as examples, when we see what they've endured, what they've gone through, the world hated them too. The world has never loved the people of God, regardless of the dispensation, regardless of the time. The world has hated the people of God. It's never been a time when the world didn't hate you. But seeing that we have them for an example, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. The word our is in italics. You know what that means? It means it's not in the original. Not in the original. Looking, the, uh, the translators believe that it needed to be there for clarity. I think what that verse is saying is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. You want to see an example of faith. You want to see an example of faithfulness. You want to see an example of someone to follow. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of faith. He sums it up. He makes it real. He makes it so that we can grasp the meaning of the cost and the sacrifice that God expects of His people. Author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. That verse is not saying the cross was something to enjoy. That's not saying that the cross was easy. It's for the joy that was set before him. He endured the suffering, the torment, all that came upon him. He understood what was coming. He understood what God the Father had planned for God the Son. Despising the shame and is set down the right hand, the throne of God. Verse 25 of chapter 12 through 29, it's the last warning, the danger of refusing God, for our God is a consuming fire. Chapter 13 talks about love in all the social realm and, and loving one another and loving in marriage and how, how important that is. Verse 6 says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Folks, our attitude needs to be, bring it on, world. God is faithful. We are in Christ. He is our strength. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is our high tower. It's to Him we run to. I'm not going to fear what man is going to say. Are due unto me. Verse 15. How do I want to end this chapter or this book? By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, regardless of the dispensation, regardless of whether he's talking to these Hebrews this nation of Israel concerning their hope for an earthly kingdom, which is what this is all about, or to the church, the body of Christ, we have every reason to praise God continually 
that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. See, that's, that's what God expects of us. Praising Him as we worship Him for all that He's done on our behalf, all that He's accomplished on our behalf. I think that verse... I think that verse is interesting in the fact that the Holy Spirit could have moved on the author of Hebrews to write, seeing we have all of these promises, seeing that we have all of this position, seeing that we have all of these blessings. Let's go out and do this, 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 and this. But it doesn't. What God wants us to do, what He inhabits, are the praises of His people. That's what God wants you to do. That's when he's glorified. That's what I want to see us do at St. Louis Bible Fellowship. I want us to be a praising church. I want us to be a church that gives God the glory. I want us to be a church that recognizes what he accomplished on our behalf. I want us to be able to define what it was that God offered to the nation of Israel. And because of their unbelief and their rejection in his love, in his mercy, in his grace... Not willing that you, 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 or you perish. By grace, he offers salvation to all who believe, including Gentiles. And when you stop and think what the Gentiles were involved in during this time, it's sort of like what they're involved in today. Real quick, I'm just going to share this story and then we'll be done. Last night, Faye and I had opportunity to go to one of the little towns around Herman, south of our town. The Chamber of Commerce there had a dinner. It was a fundraiser, and a bunch of friends would be there, and, and we were invited to go down, and really nice dinner, and it was to be a comedy show, and, and so when the friends invited us, we said, yeah, yeah, we, we want to go. That sounds like fun. We, this guy's a pastor also. And so we go down. And the meal was really good. And some of the people that we had not seen in a long time, we were able to visit with for a little bit. And when they got started, they had uh, somebody come and, and ask God's blessing over the food. And we thought, oh, okay, this is good. And someone read the 23rd Psalm. Hey, that's, this is the one, so this is rural, rural America. This is rural America. This is good. But then the comedy show started. We got up and left. The, the woman that was the, the comedian why she thought she was funny, why the organizers thought she was funny, I have no idea. Because she was anything but funny. She was pretty disgusting. And the first words out of her mouth were words shouldn't have been said. But see, the world sees that and they go, well, you said the blessing, you read Scripture. So, then let us slide and slink into really filth. And it was an older woman that was going to do the comedy routine. I, it blew my mind. We, she, she was probably into her routine less than two minutes. Less than two minutes. And we said, we're not going to sit here through this. And that just... It told me this is the way the world sees God. I'm going to make a deal with you. We're going to honor you and placate this group of people. And then we're going to do this and placate those group of people. But that's not what God wants. He wants us consistent in our walk in our love, and our testimony, 
And I hope that a whole bunch of people saw us get up and leave. I hope a whole lot of people that we've known for years said if Rick and Faye and Glenn and Joyce are going to hightail it, we're going to follow suit. I don't know. It was too cold to stand around and watch to see who else left. But the world is going to lead you astray. And I pray this morning that you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this, this morning. We thank you for the consistency of your word. We thank you for the consistency and the undying love that you have for us. We're thankful, Father, that you are the author of eternal salvation. That in the volume of this book, it is written about you, Lord Jesus. And we can glorify you and praise you and live for you and take a stand for you and be counted for you. Father, may we do that all the days of our life. May we be faithful in our testimony, in our demonstration, that you are the author and finisher of faith. And our faith in you is secure. That our faith in you is eternal. Now, Father, I pray that every person here this morning knows you. Father, if there's one person here that does not, I pray that before they leave this building, that they will trust you as Savior. That they will believe that you died for their sins, that you were buried and that you rose again. And that your invitation to them is to believe and eternal life is theirs based on your promise. Based on your finished work. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and beat it.